Hey, this is Chris. Before we get to the show, let me tell you a little bit about Anchor. Anchor is our way of we record podcasts. Fantastic. Let me tell you why. It's easy. It's free. There are creation tools that we can record and edit your podcast right from your phone and your computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on such um, providers as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need in a podcast and so much more. Check out Anchor, and you can find it all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Anchor, it's a fantastic way of creating your first podcast and making it work. And hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Hope Interrupted podcast. I'm Byron McCauley um, here with my co-author, Jennifer Mooney, and my co-host, Jennifer Mooney. And we're back. I'm just so excited about, really, I'm excited about this program because it it really is going to um really sort of exemplify what we're all about when we're talking about hope and overcoming um obstacles so jennifer how are you doing byron i am fine um i'm still in my frustration about people not getting vaccinated i i've yeah, kind of been on a, i've been on a mini rant about this lately um yeah. i'm good though um, those of you who've read the book know I haven't seen my daughter in about two years and she's supposed to be here Saturday. So I'm, ho I'm hoping that really happens with, I won't believe it till I see her. So hoping yeah. that really happens. That's going to be a great homecoming. It will. And regarding the book, um, things continue to go well with the book. If you haven't read it yet, go to Amazon, go to our website, www.hopeinterrupted.com, um, go to some bookstores. We'd love for you to read it. So I'm going to introduce today's guest. Yes. So, so full disclosure, today's guest I've known since the eighth grade. Ah. Susan Miller. And I'm looking at you guys. See, I get the privilege of looking at you two as if you're in your eighth grade picture. Nobody else sees you. We look thing, exactly so. the same. We you do. Look exactly yeah. like you look back then. Exactly. No, I, I don't, but Jennifer, yes. <laughs> no, we both do. And I knew her as Susan Miller. She goes by Sue Miller Wiltz now. Wiltz was her married name. And she lives in the Midwest, but that is after a whirlwind life. She's had a very exciting and uh, and a very busy life, and you'll learn about some of this. One thing you all know who've read the book is Wyoming, Ohio figures greatly in the book. And so we both had the Wyoming, Ohio experience together. Susan's dad um, was the minister at the Wyoming Presbyterian Church, which I'm guessing 70% of the Wyoming population attended. And her dad, <laughs> Paul Miller, conducted my first wedding. <laughs> so we do have a lot of overlap. Um, 
Susan is a real journalist. Uh, she is a real working journalist, and she ended up um, at graduate school, Columbia University, and went to work for both People and Newsweek. And if you're ever on the hiking trail with her, you can kind of barrage her with stories about the celebrities and people, and she knows a lot of answers. And she has two children, which she'll talk about some. Um, one who's in high school and one who is quite a bit younger. And um, she she um, is a widow, and she'll talk about that a little bit, too, during this. So with that, I, and Susan is extremely well-traveled, too, and um, at one point took her kids to Spain um, out of school, and they went for nine months. Seven they, close Seven enough. months. They were, gone, they were gone for quite a long time, but they're, she's raised – uh, really worldly kids in what can sometimes be um, a somewhat bland Midwest. I love the place them from there. But with that, I'd like to introduce my good friend from from childhood, Susan Miller. Well, it's great to be here. <laughs> Quite an <Wow>. introduction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Susan. I, I feel um, honored to be sort of here as part of this conversation with two great friends. Um, and a co-journalist, a fellow traveler, you and I yeah. have, uh, have, have, have done that over the years. Um, and what an exciting life, you know, it can be. Now you did work. I just really want to, before we get to the meaty stuff, we need to talk about people because <laughs> now they, they flood me. People flood, flood. Well, you know, they don't flood me unless I ask them to. And of course I ask them to, because that's what kind of person I am. I'm kind of gossipy. So I want to hear what all everybody's doing. So today, people had a picture of J Lo and what's her new old old well, new man's J Lo J Lo cut her hair. Yeah, and yeah. there's some Meghan Markle and some Prince Harry. I get yeah. it oh, too. Oh, you got it too, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So people, people, we're we're all into people. So you can have That's to so share. Funny. Share. Uh, do you do you miss it? Do you miss people? Uh, there are aspects of it I miss. It's funny. I just um, returned from vacation after I was in New Mexico and saw Jennifer. I went. Um, I have a annual trip I make, and we're at six years now with um, one of my dear friends who is still at People. And uh, she, so I got a full update on what's happening at People. But she was spent part of the vacation working on an upcoming. Um, well, it's both documentary and major story, if not cover story for people related to the children of 9-11. So you'll see that very soon if it's not, it's it's imminent that it's coming out. Um, and the the children, when I say the children of 9-11, the, the ones whose parents perished, but they have folks, she's followed um, several of these families for 20 years and has been in touch with them. So she had, you know, was working on her vacation in this little lodge that had almost no Wi-Fi or cellular service. So we would like go and do a little bit of work while we were on our vacation. And, uh, and uh, yes, there are moments when I miss it. Um, I don't miss working on all my vacations, however. I know. Yeah. But you, yeah. you do work pretty hard. I've, I've I been, do. I do. Yeah. I've been, it never goes away. <laughs> I've been blessed to see you more than twice, twice in less than a year. And I, one thing we want to talk about a little today is the consulting organization you work for now, because you guys are doing a lot of work on um, race relations, communications, diversity and everything. And mm -hmm. that really ties into, to 
the work Byron and I have done together as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What would you like to know? <laughs> well, first, I know um, you've had, I mean, you've had some recent tragedy, uh, the loss of your spouse and recently the loss of your sister last summer. Yep. And um, those are both pretty heavy things. And you are as, um, as, as bubbly and optimistic as ever, as I've always known you. And maybe talk to our audience a little about how you, how being, how becoming a widow and raising kids and Rye was, was a small guy then, um, your son, um, how, kind of how you did that. You there? I think we might have uh, lost Sue. She's coming but, back. But she's there coming she is. Back. She's back. I, I, as you said, how you something you cut out. Just so. how, kind of how you persevered um, with the kids and just with your with with your life because um, that's major change. And um, then your your sister dying too. And I know you shared with me that um, your sister lived near your parents. And yep. And kind of how all that happened, because your parents are older people, too. Right. Um, I'll go back a little bit and just talk about my husband first, because, um, you know, that there's more distance on it. So it's a little it's easier. And I, the happy bubbly person you saw probably didn't exist four years ago. But uh, but I do think, um, A, I'm an optimist and I kind of have always been. Um, but when you, it, that he passed away, he died very unexpectedly, um, not a heart attack, but, um, collapse heart related issue. And then, um, we, ha I had to make the decision. He was not going to come back from that. And so we, 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 uh, let him go. Uh, but I will say, um, yeah. So my son at that time was just six. And my daughter was 12. So now they're, you know, we're, we're four plus years off from that. And time does really help a lot <laughs> for sure. Um, but, you know, there are times when it seems like it was yesterday. And then there are times when it seems like a lifetime ago. So it's, it's really hard. Um, you go through all the different emotions at different times of the year. But I think in terms of, you know, persevering, one, when you've got two little kids, you don't really have too much choice. You know, um, you know, my my son was so small and they were at such different places. Um, my son, you know, was really so much smaller, whereas my daughter, who had had this, she was daddy's little girl. Um, she was incredibly close to my husband and um, literally, you know, needing to pick her up off the floor many times and. Um, so, you know, for the first months, for sure, that first uh, six months, I'd say um, that was what we did a lot of. Uh, it happened toward the end of the school year, and she actually um, did not end up going back to school. She went briefly while he was in the hospital, but did not end up going back to school that year. So she, of course, missed a lot of work. And so she was then very stressed out about that. But um, but mainly she was just, you know, her life was turned upside down. So. Um, helping having in some ways that was really a saving grace because it gave me a very strong focus. And um, I was working part time um, for a wonderful 
um, gentleman, David Gordon, uh, who works for an educational nonprofit and where I spent until this January, that's where I was uh, working and the flexibility. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm luckier than many. I had flexibility in my employment. So I didn't work for just a short period of time. And then I went back, you know, to part-time work, but, um, you know, just spending that time. And I remember my sister-in-law, um, you know, my brother, my sister-in-law, actually my sister-in-law introduced me to my husband. Um, and, um, she and my brother are very dear friends. And so my brother had reached out and said, you know, Ellen, my sister-in-law will come stay with you for the first 10 days if you'd like. Uh, and I said, yes, please. And that was great because all we did was play board games. We played risk. I don't know how many times we played. <laughs> my daughter loves board games to this day. She loves board games, but she was obsessed. We like, that's what we did around the clock. But the first thing she said to me is, you know, you don't have to have a funeral right now or a celebration of life. Um, you don't have to do any of that. And, you know, I think that was a saving grace because we say we we waited six months. We were able when I was more able to process and take time to think about, you know, how you how you bring some measure of closure to somebody who you didn't expect was going to leave so soon. Um, but I also had a really great, wonderful um, both family support and then both of my kids were swimming at that point and I had my swim team family. So um, they really like between family and swim team family, they really kept me going during that period. So um, rally on people around you, like lean on them. That's one of the things I like to say. Yeah. And does Rye, so Rye was only six. Yeah. Uh, so um, I'm, he was old enough though to remember a lot about his dad. Oh yes. Yeah. And he had grief in different ways. Whereas my daughter's was kind of like constant, for that first several months, the first year, really, I mean, but like really, you know, it, it, ta it takes its stages as anybody who's gone through it. And, and as we get older, we're all, you know, having, you know, I, that was the first really death of a really, really close loved one to me. Um, and it had to be my, my husband. <laughs> so it was like, boom. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, you know, uh, but Rye, and I read about this later, it would come in these little bursts where like, suddenly he'd have these just convulsions, sobbing convulsions, and in the most strangest of times, but very rarely, it happened like three or four times. And um, and even once in a while today, he'll get quiet and I'll be like, are you thinking about dad? And he'd be like, yeah. So, yeah. But, but they're both, um, I would say they're both thriving today. Um, not with, they're not perfect children. They drive me crazy, but I love them to pieces. <laughs> Tell us about Rye. So you adopted, you guys adopted Rye when he was just, when he was a baby. And um, about your decision so to adopt. He had initially um, tried to get pregnant. Well, I say that again? I'm sorry. Cut out. No, just, just um, your decision to adopt, because that's a big decision too. Right. Yeah. No, we, um, I had always thought about it. And, you know, I, of course I got married late. Um I was trying to have uh, a baby, my first child in my late thirties. Um, and so, um, and finally uh, did have Georgia when I was 41. Uh, but, um, but really we had uh, a great deal of trouble and we had started the adoption process before she came uh, because we had given up on getting pregnant. <laughs> and you know, that's what happens sometimes. Uh, you hear about that a lot. And with us, that's exactly what happened. 
um, after several years of like in vitro and every possible you know thing we could do, we were like, nope, we're good with adopting. And we started the process um, thinking we might adopt a little girl from China. But um, then Georgia came and then in the, and so we we held off. Uh, but in that time, the adoption process in China slowed down dramatically. In fact, it, it, we were waiting close to five years when I finally was like, look, this is just not happening. Um, we're going to switch gears here. And so I started to look at domestic adoption again. We had looked at it initially, but domestic adoption typically doesn't look kindly on older parents and also older parents who have a child already. Um, but the uh, economy actually, I think, had something to do with it because um, I was approached by the people who did our home study in, in Indianapolis saying, when they, uh, you know, we had the recession of, was it 2008, right? Um, and they're like, if you, you know, we are, we have people who are like the adoption numbers are going up and we don't have enough parents to, we're looking for adoptive parents. And so I was like, okay, let's, let's do this. And um, within a few months um, I was contacted about this woman who was eight months pregnant and she had already gone through two possible adoption families. And for various reasons, it hadn't worked out. She knew she was having a little boy. And um, and I was very excited about that because since I had a little girl, I was like, oh, that's perfect. And uh, and everything was right. And then it turned out we were supposed to meet. And they said, well, um, let's meet at Giacomo's Pizza. Well, that's in my neighborhood. So I was like, what are the odds? She could have been from anywhere in Indiana. And uh, it turns out she lived about two miles from my house. So we were, so I got to meet her family. Um, it was, we basically had lunch and right after that, we knew that we were going to, uh, you know, we both said yes. And it was a great lunch and we both had Giacomo pizza in common. So how could it go wrong? No, she was, she's lovely. She's just very young and she had very, um, you know, even against the wishes of some of the people in her family, had chosen adoption and she had been at the door of the abortion clinic and couldn't go through with it. So wow. that was a pretty, yeah. Um, and she was 15 at the time. So she, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty gutsy for somebody um, of that age to do something like that. And especially Sue, you know, against the wishes of other adults, right? She's still, I have a, I think about this now. I have a, I have a 13 year old and a 16 year old and that she's right in the middle of that. And so I know what that looks and feels like. Yeah. Um, uh, just to shift gears, gears just a little bit, um, Jennifer and I do talk about um, the state of our country from a race relations perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I know uh, Rye is was was a was a baby who uh, who is who often they if they're in foster care or they're in adoptions, it seems like they don't. Uh, black male babies don't get chosen at a, at a rate as others, as fast as others. So you guys also were able to give that baby a home. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, you, you've, you've, you've been raising this child in, in the environment that we, you know, are in in America. How is, how has that been for you and him? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's, I'd like to say, I, I can say that he is thriving and he, believe it or not, overtly, we have never encountered racism. He or I, because we've talked about it. 
I know it's going to happen. Um, we've talked about that too. Um, and you know, we, we just, the other day, he asked me something cause there was like a, we went into a store that didn't say had a thing where you couldn't wear hoodies. And he's like, what's that about mom? Like, you know, conversation about, you know, just what that can mean and, and how he's going to need to be, I mean, I have very frank conversations with him about it. He's going to need to be careful as a young black man who's now just at that age where he's no longer the little boy, he's getting tall, he's over five feet now, uh, still short, still little, but you know, um, but he's starting to be, you know, to grow up. And um, I, I am bracing for that time when something's going to happen. And it's, it's honestly one of the biggest fears I have. And we fortunately live um, in Indianapolis in the city and, um, I won't say it's integrated, but he lives in, in a fairly integrated and comfortably accepting environment. So both mm -hmm. at school and in our neighborhood and all those things. But, you know, you can't shield him forever from things that are going on. And we, we definitely – I've been very realistic as a journalist. You know, I, I talked all about – told him all about George Floyd, showed him a lot of stuff related to that when it happened. Um and, you know, it's interesting because I know he's processing some of it, but he also doesn't have a great deal of interest in it, at least at the present time. Although he is a very, um, like can I say, when we get, he's very political on the sense that, you know, there were in school last year with the election. So your book is about the election too. And yes, uh, it is. You know, he and his friends, um, he goes, he was going to an international school until this year, but um uh, there was a little boy in his class who's uh, um, very, the family is very pro-Trump and they, got, they did get into an altercation. <laughs> um, and it was just funny because, uh, you know, you it comes out in these funny ways. Your kids, you know, they listen to what they hear at home and then they pick it up and they bring it into the school. And both, all these little boys, there were four little boys involved and unfortunately, or fortunately, only one of them was pro-Trump. So, uh, but yeah, no. Uh, um, and he sees it more just because he saw the, all the protests, you know, I, so I think it, it comes out in these ways that it can only come out with an 11 year old. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, so I think now I'm just really trying to, you know, open avenues where he can be exposed to, you know, as much of his, um, his culture, his uh, his background as he wants to. And we've recently heard from um, the birth mother who would like to reestablish connection. So that's going to be an interesting journey, but I would like to do it. Mm, that's good. That's so good. Susan, you've, all, you've lived, the whole time I've known you, you've lived, I don't even know what the right word for it would be because diverse sounds too, but you've lived a life that's included a lot of diversity of thought um, diversity of culture, skin color, um, all of those, all of those things. So to me, you adopting Rye seems, seems, um, really natural, natural for you. Is that fair to say? Yes. I think my husband and I were a little bit different at the start, but, um, I was always, well, we were, yeah, it's a, it's a long and complicated story, but, um, I would say, you know, as we got close to the adoption, we, you, very accepting and yeah i for me it was just something it was like this little boy needed love and i wanted to have another child i you know i didn't think our family was going to be complete and i always 
actually really like the idea of adoption. And it's interesting. My daughter has recently begun saying that she's not sure she's going to bring her own kids into this world, but she definitely wants to adopt kids because there's, you know, just so many that need adopting, right? Like we have a lot of children here that need, need homes. And um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's having an impact on her as well. So in terms of the work you do now, because the work you do now is very much about inclusion. Yeah. Let's talk about that. If you could kind of um, just describe for folks listening um, sure. about the work, the work you guys are doing, because it's really groundbreaking work. Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I uh, started getting ready to go back to full-time work because uh, I had been working part-time and um, for four years actually. And, uh, it just, this, this, uh, this woman who is a CEO, she started, um, the, the company's called Blue Beyond Consulting. She started the company around her kitchen table in 2006. And, um, she is pretty amazing. I mean, she, um, and I found out about her because a woman I used to work with, uh, has been with her company for about five years. She's in charge of their business area and she reached out and she's like Cheryl wants to write a book and Cheryl um, is interested in you know developing her thought leadership and she just is too busy because she's um, she's actually a really good writer um, but she's just she's in the day-to-day -day of growing a very successful sort of what I can think now know as a boutique management consulting firm because I think I was about employee 55 and we're close to 100 employees just in the six months since I've joined so this lots and lots of growth um, in the company. And that's because she focuses on workplace culture. That has always been her um, area of specialization. And they were really small until about five years ago and started growing. And um, really, you know, she has um, a strong belief in deep trust and high expectations and, um, and, and, combining needing you to be able to combine both of those um and to bring to so people can bring their best selves to work um so you know and that's what makes an effective organizational culture and so you know that really um and she was deeply moved i mean i think she's always had an eye toward diversity equity and inclusion um since she was since she founded the company but um you know George Floyd was a turning point for the company, for sure. And um, they have spent the last year, we, and now we, because I'm six months, you know, later, I've just been there six months. Um, but the, the amount of work that we have put into authentically developing um, a diversity, equity, and inclusion um, area of service, um, which is really new for them. And then they really went back and forth on whether to be, um, is that a separate area of service? Is that infused in everything that we do? And I think that that's, I think both of those are true. I think, um, and we're still on our journey, right? We're not, <laughs> we're, it's, it's not, a, it's not like a one and done, one stop, we're done. Okay, we checked that box. And no, uh, this is like, it, 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 it really permeates every aspect of it. Um, and, you know, she deeply believes that in order to have um, an effective, workplace culture, um, it must be a culture of belonging where everybody is included and feels like they um, can bring their best self. So in a nutshell, that's what we're, we're talking about, working on, writing about, you name it. 
that is that is very admirable and i'll tell you um in in work all over the country right now we are all sort of retooling our approach to work and life around how we treat you know the other and i think that is going to be so important as we move forward and america becomes even more diverse and we have to fade away or drift away from you know the 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 sometimes really horrible underpinnings of our you know founding uh to to grow into a better country together you know to have those to fulfill those ideals that we say we are about in the United States of America. So I'm very excited about where we're going and where we must go and not, you know, not give up on that. Not let it be fresh and new right now, but not give up on it. Uh, can I ask you a question, Byron? Of course. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I, I know you mentioned as I was reading the, the book, you know, you talked about uh, a company and I, I don't think you named it and doesn't matter, but that it took them 10 days to issue a statement after George Floyd's death. Um, mm -hmm. How are you now that we're a year out? How are you seeing it in at least in Cincinnati or in the you know, in, in where you're working and where you're you know, you're writing, you're talking to people. I know you. Uh, I'm just curious, like what the what is the feeling at this point in time. I know we're, we spend a lot of time too talking about like, what's the future of work, but sure. Uh, yeah. And how workplace culture factors in, but yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts. on that. Well, what I'm hearing around Cincinnati is that sort of the, the way Cincinnati sort of works. And it's a lot like Indianapolis. You, you go to the, the sort of leader, the, the corporate leadership sort of leads the, the town and that's what's happening in Cincinnati. The corporate leadership, uh, still leads the town. Um, Procter and Gamble, for instance, uh, is leading the the you know as a leading influencer around diversity and inclusion. But also all the uh, you know when when the when the biggies sort of get you know get out in front of an issue and lead, then others tend to follow. So as an example, uh, the the company that I work for now put out a statement about it um, online, our, um, our, our CEO talked about it. And we've uh, been fortunate enough to bring in a diversity and inclusion consultant to talk about, uh, you know, assumptions and implicit bias and around race and gender and other things. So it, I think it's caused a lot of um, companies, corporate, you know, us as people, um, you know, you know, our collective corporate selves are starting to think about how we move forward better, more, and what we've done in the past. Because if you look at the makeup of the workforce, especially when you talk about non non working with your hands in labor, right? People who work with their brains, uh, you know, and create things. Um, you know, that workforce still is uh, overwhelmingly white and 
probably majority male um, still, but it still is. We don't look like we should look. And that's for a lot of reasons, but we don't. And so we have to really make, we don't have to make baby steps anymore. We need to make some giant strides, you know, to grow our bench with diverse, you know, personnel and really mean it this time. You know, we've done this before and it stopped. So we got to really mean it. Do you feel like they really mean it? We really mean it? I think some do, but I think I think it's going to it's going to take consistent intentional work. Yeah. Um and it's and it has to be a long-term play. It cannot be short-term. You can't start just to promote a lot of people and say you've and then and then say you're you're done or you can't just bring in consultants or you just you have to it has to be ingrained into a company's culture. Right. You have to really rethink your culture if you're going to make real change. And so when people seek help on that issue, there has to be a long term commitment and culture change takes time and dollars. Yeah. One thing and I know we're getting close to time, but and I know none of us have an answer for this. And I, you know, I spent a few decades in corporate America and what I always knew and granted, it's been a while since I've been in there, except on a consulting basis. What I always knew is the people in charge, and I'll say it, the white men at the top, their decisions were made on how to positively impact revenue. So if there was a case to be made that said, by having a more inclusive workforce, we're going to make more money, they were all in. And I really, I want to get to the day for all of us where you just make decisions about people and hiring because it's the right thing to do. And it's not all totally revenue driven. And I don't know what the answer to that is. I don't know how we solve that. I guess the quick way is to say, have people who look and think differently at the top, <laughs> but, but um, sure. I don't, I don't know these days. Uh, corporate America is a revenue a revenue-based decision-making body, at least I think so. Mm -hmm. It is. All those are great answers. It doesn't have know. to be yeah. a zero-sum game. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't because long-term. Long that's, that's what we got to push for. Yeah. The economic <laughs> models always show that a diverse workforce is, is, a, is ultimately a more profitable, um, brings a more profitable corporation, company, business. Yeah. Um, we are we are running out of time, and uh, you know it seems like we can talk about this forever, uh, yeah. or longer than what we have for sure. But this was a great conversation, and uh, I wish we could, um, you know, say more. But 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 you know, we add to the scholarship, <laughs> if you will. Would you call us scholars, uh, Jennifer? <laughs> <laughs> um. I, you know, my kid sure wouldn't say I'm a scholar. Uh, we um, the scholarship. The we just have work. we have a lot of passion and optimism. That's what we are. Yes, we do. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so, you so got we to. Usually, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We usually end our um, our, our podcasts Sue, with a hopeful moment, and so Jennifer usually does the hopeful moment. It's almost become her franchise, but I she let me 
borrow it this week. So I'm going to get love, the Yeah, and you came up with a better one than I usually the, come the, up with. The hopeful yeah. moment. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so there is a, 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 um, a Polish javelin thrower named <laughs> Maria Andresik sold her silver medal that she won from the Tokyo Olympics and she didn't sell it. She auctioned it off and she got $125,000 for it. Nice. Um, she wanted to do it because she wanted to help a family in her native country, Poland, pay for their infant's heart surgery. So she sold it and she provided that $125,000 to that family. Uh, uh, the, the baby sadly didn't make it, but a grocery store a, a, a convenience store chain actually bought the gold, the silver medal, and they get gifted it back to Maria. And wow. I think that's a hopeful moment it to be hopeful. able to. You, we we know how Olympians train, and we know what it took. Well, we can imagine what it took to win that silver medal. I mean, we don't we don't know, but that but to, but to me that selflessness that goes a long way. And I will tell you, uh, a, a, an American wrestler also did something very similar by giving, she won the gold medal and she gave her mother uh, money from her winnings to open her own uh, food truck from in Houston. So that was another selfless kind of moment. So thank you to them and thank you for providing, you know, our, our hopeful moment. So. And thank you, Sue Miller Wiltz, previously known as Susan Miller, in childhood, for joining the show. For joining the show today, it's been my pleasure. It's great to um, talk with you again, Jennifer, and hopefully we'll talk again soon. And Byron, hopefully I'll see you in uh, in October, maybe. Yeah, yes, you will. Thank in you, person. Sue. And and goodbye, everybody. We'll see you next week. Bye. Hi, I'm Jennifer Mooney. Welcome to what is our new Hope Interrupted podcast based on the work from our book, Hope Interrupted, that I co-authored with my good friend, Byron McCauley. Hey, Jennifer. You know, I'm looking forward to this podcast as much as I was look, looking forward to writing this book with you. We hope to interview some uh, high impact folks as well as have a little fun. We're going to cover stories of hope to learn more about our podcast and our book, please visit www.hopeinterrupted.com.